What if all faiths or worldviews were like siblings in one giant family and shared a common progenitor? Who would that ancestor be? When studying the genealogies in the book of Genesis, Swedenborg gained insight into the very origin of faith itself. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss how we draw on correspondences in our day-to-day lives. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, raises up Mary Lewis for the pivotal role she played in making Swedenborg's works available in the 18th century. Then we travel to 1749, when meditating on the book of Genesis, Swedenborg was put in touch with the spiritual community represented by Enosh in the Bible, this week in history. Welcome, Curtis, to another Inside Off the Left Eye episode. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yes. And this past week's topic on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel was the earliest source of ancient wisdom and how it was lost. So we did Mm -hmm. this interesting deep dive into what Swedenborg says about the figure of Enoch in the Bible and specifically because there he talks about how Enoch walked with God and then was taken by God. Like, it sounds like he doesn't die. So what's what's going on there? And we explored how that's really this symbol of, of the nature of how religious thought was changing at the time because people, you know, correspond to whole religious thought stages and really fascinating stuff that people can listen to uh, as a podcast on our Swedenborg and Life podcast channel or find the video on the YouTube channel. And it relates to how the development of what Swedenborg calls the ancient word, like that there was this text that existed before the modern Bible. So we're talking a long time ago. Um, And something interesting that Swedenborg found through his spiritual experiences was that this ancient word is written entirely in correspondences. That's a little bit of a setup for our reflection question for this week. Okay. Which is, do the concepts of correspondences, analogy, or symbolism play any role in your life? Oh, man. Well, I guess we're probably not looking for me to talk about, oh, well, I look at Swedenborg's correspondences a lot, but I will say there's been one correspondence that's really been hitting me over the head this winter. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it is the sun. Nice. So the sun has really become important to me over the winter. And as things have gotten dark, I really started to feel it. Mm-hmm. I think I w- got my first friendly encounter with what they call seasonal affective disorder. Mm-hmm. Which maybe I had it before, but I never really traced any kind of line from the dark days of the winter. I knew like when it was overcast, people could get a little bit bummed, but I, I had other kinds of anxiety and depression. I didn't have that. But this winter, right around the time change back in November, yeah, when, when we lost daylight, I, I didn't know why, but I was just feeling terrible. And I was sapped of the will to, to go on and live. And so I've since, you know, built up some 
some strength and taking some medicine and all these sorts of things. But it is just absolutely right blaringly obvious that the sun being out makes a huge positive difference. Whenever mm-hmm. now, even just earlier today during work, I was really working on something I, I was excited about, but the sun came out of the clouds and I said, I've got to get out because we had forecast a few days of, of cloudy weather in a row. And I was like, I got to get this sun while it lasts. And I can just feel the difference there. So that has, that on its own, it's a physical struggle and, and we're dealing with it. But immediately it's feeding into my mind this comparison to God and truth. And ha- me actually me being reliant physically on the sun to get my, you know, dopamine and serotonin, vitamin D, whatever it is I'm needing, has actually helped me understand this reliance on God for for life that Swedenborg describes. It just the, the two go hand in hand because I have some of that correspondential imagery loaded up for me. It's just like in action, needing the physical sun gets me to understand the way in which we need the spiritual sun. That's great. I love that. And it's cool to think about how the sun, when you take, you know, what we know of, oh yeah, it is important to get enough sunlight, you know, it helps your vitamin D production, all that stuff. But then to layer on this, that spiritual level of being able to really think about light and heat corresponding to love and wisdom and how we relate to that. And so it just, yeah, that's such rich fodder for being able to take what you're physically experiencing and start thinking about it spiritually as well. That's really cool. And you wouldn't Um, have any way to illustrate that, the nature of our dependence on God. If you didn't have the physical world to teach you what deficiency is and what, uh, you know, aid and need are, how would you ever understand the things going on in the spiritual world that you can't sense with your senses. So I can see their correspondences as a communication tool. That's great. Yeah. For me with this question, um, does do correspondences, analogy or symbolism play any role in your life? I think it does uh, a lot. And there's something I find it's one of those things where, right, the correspondences grounds spiritual ideas. Like when I'm grappling, I just had this experience recently where I was having to make a decision or really sort of deliberating on something and then was wanting to uh, just really sort of longing for anything that could help give me clarity. And it was this image, it was plants and the nature how plants grow and blossom and sort of just the natural cycle of that for some reason you know without having to go into tons of details that just presented to me this reflection of exactly what I was going through inside and made me feel like oh I'm okay like things are okay sort of just as they are and there was something about like if I didn't have that tool in my mind of there's a correspondence going on here even if I don't you know know all the details of it, but sort of the natural progression of a plant that, you know, sends out a shoot and starts bloss- budding and blossoming. And just that natural cycle just was this grounding mirror for my own life. And, and it might've been, you know, it's been 
plants like that, but just like other other things in nature have sort of come up in my life on different occasions and just been sort of the perfect analogy for what I'm going through. And and it's not just sort of coincidental. I think there really is like that's the natural world serving its best purpose is to help be this grounding, mirroring network for us to make sense of those the spiritual things we're going through and the processes that we're going through on the inside that can feel so, you know, kind of muddled and stuff, but it kind of gives us a framework for thinking about things. So that's, that's what was coming to my mind. Yeah, that's so cool. And it does exactly what you're describing. It puts hard edges on something that seems to have no definition, the inner Mm -hmm. experience. And I love you mentioning these plants that are so concrete, but, but teach you something about process. And you could never, I mean, just think about the way we experience thoughts and feelings in sequence. You could never, like, what, what's going on in there? Are there any rules or is there any progression? Yeah. But for you to say, oh, it's, it's like how a plant grows and just to gain comfort from that. Totally. And I feel like yes. to, to be educated about the way processes unfold inside of us, I think about myself not doing a good job gardening, like trying to clear a patch. And then there's all these plants are growing <laughs> yeah. again, the same ones already cleared away. And it makes sense, though. I get it. Yeah, they're tenacious. You know, they, they want to be there. And th- if I apply that to, oh, I thought I cleaned up this part of my mind and now it's back. Well, of course. And and I can take comfort in it just like you're describing. So it's a really good example. Yeah, that like that, you know, there's things we know about how the natural world works. But to just realize that how the natural world works is this grounding thing for uh, these spiritual principles that we can draw on in our own lives. And that's like. Yeah, there's something so satisfying about that. So that was this past week. And and of course, you can read other people's responses to the reflection question on our community tab page or our social media channels. And this next week, though, I'm excited to say we are releasing. So we're talking tomorrow, a new offering from the Off the Left Eye team. Whoa. And this is something we are calling... Chasing Swedenborg. Da-da. So you can check it out tomorrow. And this new, this, this new, I don't know what you want to call it, show, you'll have to just experience it, experience it for yourself. It's going to be, thingy. you know, released on Monday, normal time. What did you say? A thingy. It's a thingy. A thingy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's the correct technical term. It's going to have an interactive element to it where we're going to be presenting an idea that us as a team have practiced and reflected on in our lives and then we're sort of passing the baton and want to invite you all all of our listeners and viewers to chase this idea with us and so you as a podcast listener are getting a sneak peek into what the first focus is going to be and that is this idea from Swedenborg's um it's a specific number to Christianity 67 how God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. So that idea, that principle, you can start thinking, how does that impact your life? You know, if that's the bedrock of this existence that we're in, how does that impact your day to day? And so tune in tomorrow on the YouTube channel to find the first ever Chasing Swedenborg episode and then 
We'll still have on Wednesday our regular news from heaven where we'll be digging into this idea of usefulness more, and then we'll get to respond to your questions live in our Swedenborg Live show on Friday. So that's very exciting. And so, Curtis, I I guess you get to uh, sit tight, and we're going to catch up with you at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history. Hey there, we've done six months of Inside Off the Left Eye, and we're having a ball. But what has it been like for you? If you have a minute, there's a link in the description of this episode to a simple three-question survey. We want to keep creating a podcast that you love, so please let us know what you think. Now, back to the show. All right, let's shine our spotlight on the discoveries being made in the work of the NCE. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. So what what do you have for us this week? I know we're in the middle of this exciting exploration into, uh, you know, who, who Swedenborg had published his works and who his booksellers were and everything. So that's what's right. next? That's right. Well... I had talked before about uh, Mary Lewis and John Lewis, that John Lewis had published uh, the early volumes of Secrets of Heaven, and then at some point Mary took over from him. And there was often confusion among Swedenborg scholars about when exactly that handoff happened. Mm -hmm. And one reason for that confusion was a letter. uh, Alfred Acton, who was a great Swedenborg scholar, published a work called Letters and Memorials in which he had all these different letters of Swedenborg's translated into English and presented. It's a great work. I used it a lot in my introduction to the Shorter Works of 1763. Mm -hmm. And there's a letter in there. So what we found in our research was that John Lewis died on May 13th of 1755. But there's a problem with that, which is that there's a letter in Letters and Memorials from Swedenborg to his publisher in 1758. Mm -hmm. That year, as you remember, Swedenborg published five different works, including his most popular work, Heaven and Hell. And Swedenborg writes to his printer to say, here are some typos that I found. If you could fix these or just print an errata list in the end or something, that would be great. And this letter, the way that Acton presents it, is addressed to Mr. Lewis, M.R. period Lewis. Uh-huh. And so this caused some consternation when we were researching this. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought we had his death date, and that was years earlier. So what's going mm-hmm. on in this letter? And we are so blessed as to have the original of that letter, or at least we have a photo, you know, oh, reproduction wow. of it. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, it says M-I-S, and then the S has sort of a long tail on it, hmm. which is another way that Swedenborg would sometimes almost like shorthand, you know, yeah. stenographers and things like that, that, that M-I-S with this long slash coming down. Hmm. So Acton interpreted that as Mr. Lewis. Huh. Uh, something that undermines it is the content of the letter itself, where when Swedenborg was saying, I'd like these things to be fixed, he's talking 
to a British person about fixing Latin works. And so he says, could you please, please bring in the person, you know, he didn't express it this way, but this was, there was someone that he knew in England who had been his translator for uh-huh. Secrets of Heaven, Volume 2, into English. So this person knew Latin very well and had Swedenborg's confidence. So he said, could you bring this person in to check that the Latin corrections are made correctly? Hmm. The legitimate, you know, uh, you know, request. And how does he address that person in the letter? He says, could you bring in Master Marchant? Oh. M-A-S-T colon Marchant, just like we were talking about last time. Yes. Master. Master. Now, wait. Why would he talk about Master Marchant but Mr. Lewis at the top of the letter? <laughs> uh, Mr. Lewis doesn't know Latin. Marchant does. It's not that Martin Ch- Marchant is sort of socially inferior to Lewis, you know? Yes, right. Uh, it's not uh, different ranks, terms for not, rank not a or different something. Rank. No, it's basically if you were a lord or a knight, you got a certain type of address and everybody else was master or yes. mistress, as we found last time. So I think you end up in this bizarre situation where either it's the case that Swedenborg made a mistake and he actually moved to London and saw not one, two, three, four, but five volumes through the press with this person without ever realizing that she was female (laughs) or (laughs) Acton misread and misinterpreted one letter. Yes. A little I. Now, which of those strikes you as more likely? Yeah. (laughs) It seems that the burden is actually on Acton here, not on Swedenborg, and that he wrote Mistress M-I-S with a slash. Yes. And that he knew very well that he was addressing Mistress Lewis. He knew that Mr. Lewis had died three years earlier and so on. Um, You can also tell that it was Mary Lewis who took over because the ads, there were a number of ads that were placed in newspapers. Again, a discovery that we made while we were doing this introduction. Yeah. And you can find these things now. People have been scanning in all the newspapers. And and right. uh, it who it tells you to get the books from is M. Lewis. Uh-huh. Uh, which we are certain is Mary Lewis. Uh, there's one book that you can find that says that the John had a son named Matthew who was the M. Lewis who took over. Uh, <laughs> the only problem with that theory is there was no Matthew, and the man who eventually took over the business was Henry Trapp, who married the Lewis's daughter, uh, and he took over in the 1780s or something and continued to publish Swedenborg's works. So there are a number of ads for the 1758s, and they all send you to buy these things from M. Lewis, which is Lewis. Mary Lewis. So uh. I decided to, I, I started to wonder, interesting. So if you divide Swedenborg's works, let's say Secrets of Heaven divides into eight volumes, the way it was originally published, and yep. then every other title, whether thick or thin, you'd call another separate volume, let's say. Sure. So you get 25 volumes that way. How many of those 25 were published in London? 14. Okay. Well, Huh, it's kind of interesting to wonder how many of those were published by John Lewis and how many of them were published by Mary Lewis. Well, it turns out that John published the first seven volumes of Secrets of Heaven. Oh, he did. Which leaves exactly seven for his wife. 
Wow. She did the last volume of Secrets of Heaven, Swedenborg's most popular book, Heaven and Hell, New Jerusalem, Last Judgment, White Horse, Other Planets, and Soul Body Interaction. And so the husband did seven, the wife did seven. There's kind of a nice wow. symmetry there. <laughs> And who knew? This is new information, everybody. Uh, you know, no, nobody's heard this before. Nobody knows this. I know. And um, Mary Lewis also published two contemporaneous translations of Swedenborg's uh, both survey, or what used to be called brief exposition, and soul body interaction were translated into English contemporaneously. Again, I believe they were both done by this John Marchant, Master Marchant. Uh-huh. And uh, she published those. She also, we've talked before on this podcast about the brief autobiography that Swedenborg wrote. Well, that was actually printed up and distributed, and that was also done by M. Lewis, by Mary That's Lewis. amazing, the one that Hartley requested of Swedenborg. So Hartley goes to Mary Lewis. He knew her, too, most likely, and got that published as well. Got that, got that printed up. And there's another facet to Mary Lewis that seems very important to me, which is uh, that you think about those ads that, that there's if you see the title page of I believe it's Soul Body Interaction in English, it says printed and sold by M. Lewis. Yes. And that sold by is important. Like you need to know where to go to get these books. Yeah. With Swedenborg's books, some of them just one bookseller would carry one volume and then, okay, we'll try a different one this time. And this other bookseller would sell one volume. Yeah. Like, where is it in stock? Yep. In Marriage Love, as we talked about last time, when Swedenborg, even though he's publishing his books in Amsterdam for a while by that point, by 1768, the place he sends you, two places he sends you to get these works are uh, M. Lewis in uh, England, and also Hart, also in England, in London. Hmm. And so what this means to me is that her she was not only publishing Swedenborg's works in Latin and English translations of them, but she was also the kind of world repository. Yeah. The one-stop shop. If you really wanted to get the set... Don't go over to one of those other booksellers who only has one copy of one volume or something. Go to M. Lewis in Paternoster Row. Uh, her address was number one Paternoster Row, and Swedenborg always says Paternoster Row near Cheapside. Yeah, cheap, as you may know, just like we say inexpensive or cheap, was originally a term for the market, uh-huh. and Cheapside was the market district, and then. You turned from that cheap side, which was a major thoroughfare, into the printing district to go down Paternoster Row, and she was right there at the corner, the first bookseller. So if oh, you're wow. going into the booksellers, she's the first one you see. And so I just imagine that at a time when the Church of England was powerful, there was freedom of the press, but there wasn't no restrictions whatsoever. You could get in a lot of trouble for printing the wrong things, and mm-hmm. and you could be put out of business. And she's right on the corner, and she has these Moravian works. She has Baptist works, you know, other sort of separatist movements that are going on in England. Yes, right. And a complete set of Swedenborg's works, whether published in London or in Amsterdam. She's got all of them there at her shop. 
Wow. And that was very significant. Like for people, you, you have to have that, don't you? You have to know, where do I go? It's like Swedenborg.com now. You know, where yeah. do I go to get a hold of these things? <laughs> you need to have a place to get them. And yes. so I would say that we owe this Mary Lewis a debt of gratitude. Yes. Uh, she not only published seven of the theological works, but also translations of those works and also had the whole thing there as a one-stop shop in her store. And I would say that our debt of gratitude, anybody who's connected with Swedenborg or learning from this information, mm-hmm. has a debt of gratitude to her that I would submit is not paid in full by persisting in referring to her as Mr. Lewis or Matthew or John. <laughs> I think we can do better. And, yeah, we and can we do better. found this out now. You know, now, now she, she should have her day in the sun. She was a really important part of this whole thing. And she was bold. You know, she just kept doing it right through Swedenborg's lifetime and on for another eight years afterwards and then passed the baton on to her son-in-law and and he kept doing it after that. So Okay, so she did keep going eight years after Swedenborg's death. That's know. right. Up to about 1780, it seems that she was still active publishing these things and having them wow. on sale and so on. She's the first generation. And then all the Swedenborg publishers followed her, you know, so Swedenborg Foundation, we should we should have something sort of with the Mary Lewis name on it or something like that, you know, like an, in, That's right. an honorarium sort of a thing. So it's very fun. What a privilege and a fun thing to do this research and discover these things from history. I, You know, uh, Alfred Act and other people, they didn't have information. There was no Internet. They, they didn't have access to this uh, death date for John Lewis. Right. How do they know? They, they may not have even known that people were generally referred to as master and not mister, even though he might have been able to tell just from that letter. But... But, you know, right. they didn't know, so they did the best they could, and they said, Mr., and, uh, but uh, we now know that, that there was no Matthew. That was Mary, and, and she did a lot for the cause of Swedenborg. Wow. That's, that's amazing to have that, to have you discovering that, the reality that's just hidden right there, that, that mistress, the M-I-S-T-R dot that we explored earlier, that... It's, you know, hidden in plain sight, and, That's and right. now we can raise up Mary Lewis and thank her for all of her good work that she did to be that source for Swedenborg's works in at such a pivotal moment, of course, like the beginning, getting getting those ideas out there. That is amazing. That's right. Super fun. So great to explore this historical context with you, Jonathan. Thank you for your work on the NCE and the whole NCE team is just such valuable stuff. And so let's go now to see where Swedenborg was this very week in history. Hey, Curtis and Jonathan. Hello. Hi there. Now we are going to explore where Swedenborg was this week in history. And but before we do, we've got to touch base about the fact that tomorrow is Swedenborg's actual birthday. So we had, Ooh. yeah, we had touched back, I guess it was the last week or the week before we talked about um, Swedenborg's birthday, how it landed on, he was born on January 29th, but with this whole calendar change in the middle of his life, he 
uh, his birthday, according to our calendar now, is technically February 8th. And so we can say happy real birthday to Swedenborg tomorrow. Happy. Thank you. Okay, that's about as far as we're going to go on that. Um, and so this week in history, in the year 1749, um, there, where Swedenborg was, he was in London, actually, because he was working on writing the first volume of Secrets of Heaven. And in that first volume, he is exploring the chapter of... You know, the chapters of Genesis, that's what the first, you know, he picked, started at the beginning. So the first volume of Secrets of Heaven goes through, I don't know, Jonathan could probably tell us how many of the chapters of Genesis. Do you know that offhand? Oh, in the first volume, he does uh, 15 in his first Latin volume. Oh, wow. So 15 in the first volume. And at this point, we know through, because at the same time, he's keeping this record of spiritual experiences. And... At this week in history, he is pretty much lining up exactly with the chapter in Genesis that we were just talking about in our Swedenborg and Life show this week, where it talks about Enoch, and that's in Genesis chapter 5. And something in that, you know, Genesis chapter 5 is this long genealogy that's talking about Adam and Eve and their, their kids and their grandkids, basically, and maybe great grandkids, I'm not sure. And what's fascinating is in and what we talk about in the show is how the different people these generations actually correspond to like what Swedenborg might call churches but what he means by that is like ways of religious thinking like sort of the way people thought about faith and um and spiritual ideas and that that sort of went through these successive stages and and so Enoch is this pivotal one that we explored in the show. And in Swedenborg's spiritual experiences, he meets the spirits f- that were from another one of those names mentioned in that genealogy. And before we get to that exactly, it's just so interesting that Swedenborg, this is what would often happen to him is when he's studying the Bible, He's that's like a a trigger, a catalyst for the spiritual experiences that he has. So you'll find if you explore, or I wonder, you guys have probably run into it, where his spiritual experiences will often have like a biblical notation with them because he's saying, I was reading this and then I was talking to, you know, Moses or or all these different figures, right? Yeah, it seems like there's this key experiential component to how it became real to him that he was always given to get inspired by the text and then see that phenomena play out in the spiritual world. And I was just reading uh, one of his memorable occurrences or descriptions of an episode in the spiritual world. And it just really struck me how all of these examples he's giving of these experiences, he's just, the whole slant in his writing is to say, see, this shows that the world really does work this way. Mm. You know, he was he was saying, look at all these people who are in the spiritual world because they love this thing. When they approached heaven, they started to feel inner torment. And so they backed away. It's not really about what those people are doing. He's trying to show, look, the, the outer world experience teaches confirmation of these principles we're pulling out of the word. Hmm. That's so interesting. And I've wondered whether part of his writing technique was to have a series of meditations 
on these topics yeah. because in the memorable occurrences that are included in his work on marriage, lo and behold, most of them have to do with marriage or have some connection with it. You know, uh, and he's sort of, in fact, there's even a point where he turns that sort of dark topics at the end of the book where he says, I turned my meditations to this next topic. And it made me think, oh, I think he's actually kind of steering, like he's sort of reflecting very deeply about this material and then that informs his writing. Yes. I bet there's something along those lines. So at this point in the book of Genesis and what Swedenborg is exploring is this uh, the genealogies and what they represent is this transition that's happening from the earliest people that Swedenborg learned who who had direct revelation from heaven and this perception that was just unlike anything that, you know, people's experience today. And but that there was this successive transition where that inner perception sort of access was lost and in place of it was um you know, written theology, essentially, like learning teachings that help you connect in with with the, like the spiritual reality. But it's really a process of learning the, theological truths rather than having this direct revelation from heaven. And that's represented in Adam and Eve and then the first generation, their children and then their children's children, etc. And so in the episode, we explored Enoch. And so Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel and then Cain's son is Enoch. And what's so fascinating to me is that this separate branch of the family tree, Adam and Eve have this have another son, Seth, and Seth's son is Enosh. And in Spiritual Experiences 4139, Swedenborg connects with the people who are represented by Enosh. And so I'll share that with you guys, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts. It's just so uh, interesting. So here he says about a new church called Enosh, and he says some from the church, and so by church, you know what that means, sort of really just like a way of thinking about things, um, that was called Enosh to be discussed at the end of this chapter, the chapter of Genesis, spoke with me who held charity to be the principal property of faith. I noticed that they approached softly near the head upwards, speaking with restraint, saying that they live among themselves charitably and perform friendly services to others, but do not think so very much about the Lord, but still somewhat. This showed that their charity was the charity of friendship and somewhat also the charity of faith. They live quietly, causing inconvenience to no one, like good citizens. And... So I think that's, first of all, it clearly does suggest what you were saying, Jonathan, that maybe he is just in a deep meditation and that's helping him connect to these spirits who are from, who are from the church that was called Enosh. And, and I think it's so interesting that he pins that idea that they held charity to be the principal property of faith. And that's so core to what you know, what Swedenborg learned about. So what are your thoughts? The word that comes to mind is the word culture, interestingly, because he's talking right. not only about their kind of doctrine, but also, hey, they're very nice people. They aren't terribly focused on 
God. They're more thinking about the neighbor, uh, but they just don't inconvenience anyone. And I, I feel like I've met people in my life, <laughs> you know, from that church or something. Uh-huh. You know, this this sweethearts, good good people, don't get too tangled up in the theology or whatever. Um, but that's a, a a neat description. It almost helps me understand what he means by this word church. That th- these generations he's talking about. That this group looks at it this way, and then you know a little later there's an offshoot that looks at things differently. And here's what is important to them. Yes, it's so interesting to think about. You know, if if everything is a derivative, you know, it's coming from this original state that was what Swedenborg says is that the only doctrine that the earliest people had was a doctrine of charity. You know, that love was the main thing. How do we love the neighbor was this, you know, science to them. And, and that as things went along, people got more and more further away from that core of charity. So I find it, it's cool that uh, this Enosh, you know, sort of grandchild, quote unquote, to the to that earliest faith is still has that principle, like holding charity as the principal property of faith, even though it seems to have gotten a little bit lukewarm or something because he says, you know, they, they don't think so very much about the Lord, but they're really just thinking about how do we help each other? Like that's good. And um, so it's just interesting to see that, right. Sort of still in the same category, but a little bit different. And can we just linger a little longer even on this idea of charity or kindness being the core of faith rather mm-hmm. than doctrine. Because if I was going to say, well, are you religious or not? What do we define that by? It's, well, do you like, you know, believe in the Bible and believe in God and that that, or, you know, do you, are you a Christian? And by being a Christian, what we mean is, do you go to church? Do you say these kinds of prayers? Do you have, yeah, it's beliefs, it's beliefs for the idea that the, actually the important thing that defines the church is love toward other people. I was reading elsewhere in Secrets of Heaven that charity is actually the firstborn of faith and doctrine is, it follows that. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks like that. And that's a, I, I know that it's not like, oh, well, you, what you believe your ideas aren't that important. That's why he's referencing the fact that these people don't have the same kind of cognition about God as, as a, maybe a bit of a negative. But it's just a really intense proposition that, that what makes you religious is loving other people. That's what drives it. And it's not about religious ideology. That is not the thing that, that qualifies you. Yeah, it's so cool. And I love that the idea that, you know, of course, Swedenborg has just this beautiful teaching about how, like, if charity was the thing that we all held as being the most important, and even that word charity gets thrown around in a weird way. So we're kind of using it differently than other people might be used to, where it's really, you know, uh, how how to love each other, you know, how to show up and just have love be what leads us in our life, you know, love love for others, love for the common good. And um, and so that if that was what people held as the most important thing, then sort of different ways of how we understand things, the different names for God that we have or, you know, anything along those lines would be of 
no account. You know, it wouldn't get in the way from us being able to just show up for each other and be a part of one, you know, human family. And that's what I love is the genealogies put that put the idea that different faiths are a part of one family, you know, that they are, uh, you know, the generations of something that's core that begins with what Adam and Eve, you know, symbolize. And that uh, that's just a cool thing to think about that by studying Swedenborg, it kind of puts this idea of different faiths as not being just random things that developed totally independently of each other, but that they really, we can think about faith and even just the ways we think about how to love each other being all a part of one big family. So that that's cool. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. Well, fun to talk with you both about Enoch and Enosh and this, uh, the whole family that's described in Genesis 5 and think about Swedenborg exploring, finding insight into those genealogies, which are pretty, you know, I don't know if I meditated on them, if I'd get much spiritual insight. (laughs) So I'm glad Swedenborg did and could share that uh, with all of us. And so I I just want to say thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. This has been great. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Well, we will be here with you next week inside off the left eye i hope you enjoyed this week's episode of inside off the left eye subscribe to inside off the left eye to never miss when a new episode comes out and while you're at it rate us on apple podcasts and leave a review that would be a huge gift to us and helps others find the show if you're hungry for more you can explore all our spiritually enriching content at our website offthelefteye.com Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and I can't wait to explore more of life in the world with you from inside off the left eye next week. Mm